Hey, everybody. Welcome to Useful Idiots Monday morning after morning show. Katie, unfortunately, can't be with us today. It's her birthday. She's off uh, attending some birthday events and having a good time. So I wish her the best today as she celebrates. But uh, thanks for being here with me. And let's take, uh, let's take some calls. So Jason, you're up first. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm well. Uh, I'm well, thanks. Good, good. And happy birthday to Katie. There you go. She's, here's this. Yeah. Um, hey, I just had a kind of off topic, but Paul Mason, are you kind of surprised that he's still accepted in, I guess, in polite society? You know, it's kind of just seems like they're ignoring everything that's come out about him and kind of rehabbing his image. Yeah, well, look, Paul Mason embodies the values of what has become polite society, which is uh, censoring dissenting voices, reinforcing the, uh, you know, centrist uh, foreign policy consensus. And so someone like that getting caught trying to plot with the national security state in the UK to take down dissenting voices is uh, that's welcome in those circles. And they're not going to make a scandal out of it because they actually, I mean, people in in his uh, milieu either support censorship or they just don't want to bear the consequences of standing up against it. So, you know, for example, if, if someone in the UK media were to say, you know, we don't support the, these McCarthyite attacks on journalists and accusing everyone who doesn't go along with the Ukraine proxy war of being Putin dupes, then they're going to be called mean names. They're going to be called Putin apologists, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people, right. for a lot of people, even if they don't even share the views of Paul Mason, they just don't have the fortitude to withstand being called mean names. And that's honestly what a lot of like, if you're going to work in, in, in foreign policy and, and um, if you're going to work in, uh, in journalism that challenges like the dominant narratives of the Democratic Party, it, a lot of it comes down to whether or not you can handle being called bad names. That will deter a lot of people from 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 doing anything substantial. Me, I I don't mind it. In fact, I like it. Uh, I I enjoy it. I because to me, it's a reflection of how people can't engage with the facts that I'm reporting on and bring to light. But a lot of people can't handle that, and so that's why someone like Paul Mason, uh, you know, and for those who don't know the story, he's a British journalist who was caught in leaked emails plotting with people from the British uh, national security state to go after the gray zone, the outlet that I work for. And also he wrote up this map trying to basically accuse everyone to his left of being uh, under the influence of Vladimir Putin. It's crazy stuff, but it doesn't get, uh, there's no outrage because there's just no incentive for careerist people to to call him out. There's only going to be for them repercussions if they stand up to what he embodies. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I'm not surprised that there was no outrage or almost no repercussions. It's it's just depressing. But, um, hey, if anyone wants a good laugh, um, Google Boris Johnson's sporting highlights. You'll, you'll find some good stuff. Okay. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the call and the tip. Okay. And John. Hi, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Um, yeah, it was a good show today. Um, I just had a couple comments. Uh, I was wondering if you noticed that um, there was hardly any mention of uh, Ukraine uh, this this uh, Sunday morning shows this week. Um, like it's almost over. Well, I have noticed that for the last several weeks, actually. With all that's been happening in the U.S., mass shootings, the Roe versus Wade ruling, um, and January 6th as well, that Ukraine, after taking up so much space for the first few months of the invasion, that it's kind of gone off the radar. And that's a problem, I think, for people in Washington who are going to need to continue to manufacture public support uh, because this war, because they want this war to go on, because their, their, their goals as Lloyd Austin made clear, is to use this proxy war to weaken Russia. And in fact, some Biden officials confirmed that over the weekend in an, in an article in the New York Times where they said that what Austin said was, was correct, that that was their strategy. They just didn't like him saying it. 
So they need this war to go on, and for that they need public support. But it's just um, public attention is is waning because there are problems here to deal with, and uh, people are also feeling the impact of of this war with higher fuel prices and you know supply chain issues and all that. So it's interesting to see how the media is adapting. And you know, in recent weeks, that's been basically to keep it off of uh, off of the Sunday news shows. And yeah. I wonder, I wonder what that will mean for the administration's ability to keep this going. Maybe it's on the, on the other hand, maybe it's a good thing that no one's talking about it because that way less people will ask questions and and will be remembering that their government is so heavily invested in a very disastrous conflict abroad. Yeah, it it absolutely strikes me that it's uh, part of the general mo. Um, the biggest lies they tell are the you know, stories that never make it on the air. Um, so they, you know, all the big boys got their money, you know, got to move some weaponry, and now it's just not an interesting topic anymore. Um, yep. and, and it's incredible that, you know, things are turned on their heads. All the left anti-war people are now, you know, fully in support of this. And the right, you know, the right are the only ones actually speaking some truth about it. So of course it's time to censor the whole thing. Tell me about it. It's um, <laughs> it's the most pathetic thing I've ever seen politically in my life, at least in the in the U.S. The complete abandonment by the left of any kind of anti-war stance. There was one hint of it recently. I don't know if you saw this, but Ro Khanna finally came out with some statement saying, "We can't be in this never-ending conflict. What's the plan on the diplomatic front?" He said that to the Washington <laughs> Post. Uh, about a week ago, but then he didn't follow up. So if that's his question, then why isn't he pushing for answers? Why isn't he saying to Biden, what's your plan? Like in demanding a plan to end the war, but he's not going to do that because, you know, he, he, he's on board. And that's why it was just reported this week in the Washington post that they said that Antony Blinken has not spoken to any senior Russian diplomats since the war began. And recently Blinken and Sergei Lavrov his Russian counterpart were together at the G20 summit and they didn't speak because uh, Blinken's strategy in the words of the Washington post is do not engage. So that means do not engage in diplomacy, do not end the war because they don't want it to end yet because they think they can use it to bleed Russia some more. But that's why you're also seeing, and this has been funny to witness like these leaks that have come out trying to shift blame. So I don't know if you saw this, but in the times, like, I don't know, maybe it was a month ago, there was an article saying that the Ukrainians are not giving the U.S. an accurate picture of what's happening on the ground. Yeah. You know, so now it's the Ukrainians' fault. So at first we were supposed to worship how brilliant our intelligence officials were in predicting that Russia would invade and how they know everything. Now we're supposed to blame the Ukrainians for our intelligence officials not getting it right, that actually Ukraine is getting decimated. You know, so now we have to blame Ukraine for that, Ukraine officials for that, not our holy intelligence professionals. So the narrative will always change and there will always be reliable stenographers at the Times and elsewhere to parrot whatever they want put out there. Absolutely. And I I heard a little bit of your uh, call in. Uh, I don't know if it was last night or a couple nights ago. Uh, you talked a little bit about Amy Goodman. And it kind of breaks my heart, too, that she's just not um, covering this war uh, the way she's covered things in the past. And um, I can't explain it, but it's it just it's kind of a big disappointment to see somebody that you admire for so long. Um, well, I don't want to get into that so much. I did want to mention this uh, concept that I'm in somewhat disagreement with you on, which is um you know, the idea that they're just running this uh, whole January 6th into the ground. And my my point is that, yeah, there's too much political theater and so forth. But, you know, Trump is like the spoiled brat, like everybody knew a spoiled brat that, you know, got away with everything, you know, their whole lives and their parents always backstopped for them, um, you know, and if he's. And it's not just that if he's allowed to get away with it, the problem is like there are still millions and millions of, you know, people that supported Trump that believe 
the big lie, you know, and if we don't have some kind of consequences for this person, then, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, it's scary to me that so many people still cling to these lies. Okay, I got that. But here's my counterpoint to you. Where is the January 6th-like investigation into Russiagate, which personally to me was a lot worse than January 6th? January 6th was like, uh, you know, a deranged campaign by Trump and a few of his associates culminating in a three-hour riot. Russiagate was a multi-year manufactured scandal in which uh, elements of the national security state essentially conspired with Trump's opponents to undo his election uh, by accusing him of being a Russian agent based on completely manufactured Claims completely. It was a complete scam. And there's been no accountability for that. And the only uh, ways in which it's been investigated is by is through efforts to actually make it look credible. The Mueller investigation was a lengthy farce to make Russiagate look legitimate. And so unless you take responsibility for that, you're always going to have people on the right willing to believe the most insane conspiracy theories like Trump did, because, you know, after three years of being told that the guy you elected was really a Russian agent and therefore wasn't a legitimate president. And again, the consequences there were to me a lot worse than a three hour riot. The consequences were essentially criminalizing diplomacy with Russia, um, making it so that Trump, if he had any serious intention, I'm not saying he did, but if he had any serious intention of actually engaging in diplomacy with Russia, maybe ending the war in Ukraine that was raging for many years, Russiagate completely sabotaged all of that and made the world, to me, a more dangerous place. And there'll never, never be any accountability for that unless John Durham is allowed to you know, put out his report and is allowed to do a serious job. But I, look, I don't think, so far at least, he's been pretty uh, tame, I think, in what he's done. And I think that reflects he has a much smaller staff. And I think he also knows that if he goes too far, he'll be shut down. So, uh, and also, I just think, too, listen... If Trump did something criminal, he'll be charged because there is a justice there is a Justice Department investigation overseen by Merrick Garland, which has a lot more uh, uh, legal power than Congress does. So, to me, what Congress is doing is just kind of theater, and that's why you're seeing all these supposed bombshells, like everything that Cassidy Hutchinson said, not panning out because it's just they're trying to make something they're, they're trying to make theater out of what happened. And I just don't think that is uh, a, a worthy use of our time and attention with all the problems going on in this country. So that's, that's a long winded critique on, of, yeah. on Cassidy. And, and I also agree with you. I thank you for, uh, you know, hoping open my eyes about Russiagate. Cause I, I followed that crap for years and believed what was going on. Um, and I, I can credit you and Katie and, um, and Matt, uh, for having opening opened my eyes to that, but the problem, the, you know, there, I, I look at something like the Iraq War and weapons of mass destruction and the way the media uh, pushed all of that and never apologized for any of it, you know. And then same with Afghanistan. Twenty years later, they they looked at different things, but they never looked at themselves, you yes. know. So yes. I don't the media to ever actually um you know come forth and say hey we were wrong like could could you imagine um rachel maddow just coming out and say sorry folks i was wrong for you know the last four or five years all i did was say russiagate you know and i was wrong she'll never do it no no of course they won't uh because the narrative is just too important to them and uh, no, they'll never admit wrongdoing. I've I've tried. I I wrote an article late last year for Real Clear Investigations about just looking at stories that won the Pulitzer Prize. Because recall that the the New York Times and Washington Post shared the Pulitzer Prize for their supposed amazing reporting on Trump and Russia. And my article was based on you know was just uh, arguing that all these Pulitzer Prize winning stories and reporters were based on fraud that they completely completely distorted the facts and they left out the inconvenient facts to advance their agenda. And look, but these papers, they won the Pulitzer. And for them to admit that they were engaged in fraudulent 
uh, or uh, or mal conduct or journalistic malpractice. That's just it's too damning. So they'll, they'll never engage with critiques, and that's why when I sent them a lot of detailed questions, the Times didn't even respond, and the Washington Post gave me really evasive answers that um, didn't really resolve the issues that I was I was getting at. And that's how it will always will be. They will never admit wrongdoing. John, I appreciate the call. We got a lot of people in the queue, so I'm going to move on. So thank you for calling in. Appreciate Bye. it. Bye. Uh, Okay, Eric. Hey, happy birthday, Katie. Am I right? You are right. Um, you are right. Yeah, sorry. I got the dogs going off in the background. Um, so I wanted to ask you um, then um, if you've noticed um, the latest Hunter Biden leaks. And I wanted to ask you, you know, my broad question is, how do you sift through what looks real and what looks fake? when it comes to those leaks. And obviously, you know, I think we would both agree that, you know, the whole thing of censoring Hunter, the Hunter Biden story was, I mean, unconscionably, uh, a sav- I think in my opinion, a savage attack on freedom of thought and information. But in any case, what do you, how do you specifically sort through personally, if you are tr- looking at that story, what looks real and what looks like it could be fake mix- mixed in with the real. And, and, okay. and that's my only question. I'll take it off. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. Uh, I haven't looked at what's come out yet, but for those who missed it, 4chan, 4chan apparently has posted some a lot of videos and other material that has been hacked from Hunter Biden's iCloud account. And there's all these new videos of him doing drugs with prostitutes. That's what I, I heard. Uh, and, you know, I have no special method for determining what is factual and not. You know, if you see Hunter Biden in a video with drugs and prostitutes, I think it's pretty safe to assume it's real <laughs> based on his, based on his record. But obviously if you're covering the story, if you're, if you're going to do journalism on it, then you have to um, authenticate things the best you can. And for people who were covering Hunter Biden's emails, they did that by contacting the people who were in those emails to see if they were indeed legit. And I haven't heard of a case yet where they weren't legit. Every email in that Hunter Biden archive that I've seen has has been real. But it's funny. I mean, with the Hunter thing, it's funny just the lengths that the media has gone to ignore this story. First, they did it by pretending as if that was all just Russian disinformation. That, of course, turned out to be a scam. And now I don't, you know, whether they'll report on this new batch of leaks, I seriously doubt it. If it was Don Jr., best believe this would be front page stories. But this is Hunter Biden. So I think we'll be seeing something very different. Okay, Todd. And Todd, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you put. There you go. You had it. There you go. Hi, Aaron. Uh, Hi there. Sorry, I'm at work as well, so <laughs> I'm trying to multitask here. But I wanted to call in. I obviously have a lot of uh, opinions on a lot of things, but my most important uh, is to, first of all, uh, give a shout out to uh, the Gray Zone because you and Max do incredible work. And as a um, great individual in international relations and European history as far as well as uh, economics and business. I, uh, I just have an immense appreciation for uh, world politics and, and where we fit in in the global uh, spectrum. And I think it's so important. Most Americans have no clue and most Americans are no longer educated in America to any of it. And that gets me to the second point. I think uh, right now we're seeing uh, a two-party system that's completely manipulated uh, this country politically because of the fact that most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, simply don't have the means to um, worry about anything other than the amount of money in their wallet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see it every day up and down my street. Um, you know, I don't have any children. I'm, I'm pretty well off, uh, but I'm well educated and I care about what goes on around the world, particularly in my country. I'm 60 years old. You know, I, I I used to believe that America would go the right direction, and that is towards a progressive uh, government. And uh, since the 80s, when I finished college, it's done exactly the opposite. Uh, and I am really saddened by that. Uh, our corruption in politics is, I think, uh, something that's by design, and it keeps people divided. And uh, I, I think that that division is, is stoked by things that really don't matter in our everyday world. Um, and unfortunately, 
we can't get past that to come together in an intelligent manner to solve our problems both nationally and globally and uh, as a result i see america as just um indoctrinated in a um, a plan to really cause so much dis disruption around the world of course we've seen it in the last hundred years and really in our history and uh, as a nation and it, it really is quite disturbing and I, I i i'm very cynical at this point in my life i don't see it changing and I feel for the young people today that have to somehow um, accept it and uh, not see a way out. I'm just curious where you see all of these uh, breakdowns internationally right now. You know, we've got Ecuador, all these things going on around the world. We're, we're seeing economies and governments completely imploding. I mean, I don't think America can hide that forever. I think it's going to come home to roost. Yeah, I agree. When you're running a global empire and you're simultaneously crumbling at home and the world is changing, I mean, certainly I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a global changing event. I do think it set off a new era. As for what it will look like, I don't know. I don't like making predictions like that. But certainly Russia deciding that it's done with the West, that it can't trust the West, it can't engage with diplomacy with it, it doesn't care if it's cut off from it economically, that's... That's huge. And people elsewhere will be forced to pick sides. And I think China's picked its side in this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, um, I certainly think we're living in uh, unprecedented times. And, 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 um, but already, look, I mean, I thought that Russia would, su would suffer huge consequences for this immediately. But so far, from what I can tell, they haven't. They're their currency is doing well. And uh, so who knows where where things go. But I Yeah, I think it, we yeah. picked a fight with Russia uh, and didn't realize that they would be strengthened by their uh, their strongest production. Uh, you know, and I think uh, we were in the worst place when we picked that fight and economically. And, and I, I think it was a huge mistake. I, I can't believe the blunder that this administration but then Republicans were behind it too. So yeah, it, it really it's totally cool. it's completely it's completely bipartisan. Uh, Jim yeah. Reich, who is the uh, Jim Reich, who is the uh, Senate uh, uh, ranking uh, senator on the Foreign Relations Committee, he was talking recently in a hearing about Syria. But he said, you know, he was talking about basically about both conflicts, Syria and Ukraine. In Syria, you know, the U.S. is occupying a third of the country, and he said about both conflicts that th these things are not going to end we have to keep these going because and his message was that in both places you know russia has to pay a price and so these you know he's openly advocating that these conflicts go on for a very very long time and that's i think pretty much the bipartisan point of view there's no energy at all for you know um disengaging in these military conflicts abroad especially in syria which is pretty low cost i mean the u.s has like i don't know around a thousand troops there and they can just be there and no one's going to attack them because they don't want to start world war three. And, uh, so that's easy for them relatively just putting the soldiers on the front lines, but Ukraine. Yeah. In Ukraine too, it's Ukrainians who are paying the price, not Americans. So what do people in Washington care? It's just the rest of the world that has to suffer. You know, there was even a line in the Washington post a few weeks ago saying based on what administration officials are saying. And they say that, the administration is willing to countenance a global recession and mounting hunger. They don't even care that the sanctions they've imposed on Russia will lead to mounting hunger. They're willing to countenance that. That's how committed they are to their proxy war goals of, of using Ukraine to weaken Russia. So that's where we're at. Yeah, and I think uh, Americans are about to um, really have a strong attitude towards it, only because it's now hurting their wallet. Yep. And uh, that's it's the only way you get anywhere with Americans are just obviously I have a very uh, personal view of the American people. I'm a fifth generation American, but I think Americans are completely ignorant to most things that go on uh, globally and they don't understand how it impacts them. And well, they're not allowed to understand. That's the whole point, because if they, well, did they don't seek that knowledge either. They're well, not, yeah, look, I just don't seek it. So I, I, I think we live in a really brilliant propaganda system where people are given no choice but the party line within a narrow spectrum of debate where you think the only spectrum of debate is is democrats versus republicans when meanwhile these two parties agree on so many things especially on foreign policy and so americans unless they do extensive research projects are not going to find 
and the alternative. And as you were saying before, who has the time for that when you're trying to feed your family and, and deal with everything else that life throws at you? So anyway, look, uh, Todd, thanks a lot for the call. I really hey, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate all you give. I appreciate it. Thank you. Tyler. Okay. No Tyler. Uh, Fahim. Can you hear me? Aaron? Yeah. Yes, I can. Hey, it's Fahim, by the way. Fahim, sorry. So, no worries. Hey, a uh, question uh, for you. Is there a reason why you guys on your uh, uh, Monday morning thing never uh, bring up uh, Farid uh, Zakaria? Because I, uh, I have watched a few of the shows just before I gave you uh, guys a call. And every single uh, show, I mean, if... Uh, uh, just uh, this week, he um, on talking of Ukraine. His thing was that okay, we should amp up uh, more arms, and uh, we should produce uh, more uh, oil, and uh, Germany should uh, basically utilize uh, the uh, nuclear uh, powers. Uh, oh, I mean nuclear energy uh, and all. And uh, then uh, when it comes to any conflict, uh, let's say uh, in uh, the Middle East, uh, one thing. Uh, he'll always bring up is his uh, the what I call it the uh, French Antonio Banderas, which is uh, Bernard Henri Levy. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, he'll yes. come up, or, or or his usual cast of characters is uh, uh, Richard Haas and Anne Applebaum. And when it comes to the economy, for him, I got the uh, yeah, I got the question. I got the question. Look, it's a good idea. No, no, there's no reason why we don't include Fritz Zakaria. Just we just don't. Um, we, we haven't gotten around to it, but I will, I will add him to our menu, our Sunday, uh, morning show menu. Cause especially if he's interviewing Bernard Henri Levy, one of the most evil figures, I think in modern intellectual life, I would love to, uh, make fun of that. You know, so he thanks. has released a movie right now on, uh, Ukraine. Oh, great. Great. I can't wait to watch <laughs> yeah, that one. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Can't wait to watch that one. Thanks for the call for him. Thank but you. Anyways, thank you, Aaron. All right, next caller is Danil. Oh, hi, Aaron. Hi there. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks for taking the call. Um, so I guess my question is, is there anyone who you've spoken with, a friend or family who had opposing views? Um, maybe they're propagandized or you know, they watch the mainstream media. And was there any anecdote that you could share in which um, where you were able to speak to them and kind of make them see um, your perspective? Well, sure, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's my entire life has been speaking to close friends and family who don't agree with me, you know. Uh, but um, uh, look, Russia Gate's an easy one. After Trump won, people were so upset and so in such shock that they're willing to believe anything. And so when they were told that the reason Trump won is because Vladimir Putin installed him as part of a sweeping conspiracy into involving P-tapes and blackmail, people close to me believed it. And, uh, you know, this is what – and that's also a reflection of what we've talked about earlier is there was no alternative on, in the corporate media and also even in progressive media. There's just – that's all everybody was saying. Everybody was on board with it. And, you know – no one took the time to actually read the underlying evidence, like what you know, whatever was coming out, the Steele dossier, the reports. I mean, very few people have the time to do that, but I did. So I would do that, and I would just try to explain to people that it was all bullshit. It was a complete, it was a complete scam. There was nothing there. And um, initially, I, you know, you know, uh, good friends were very resistant to that and didn't want to hear it. But eventually, after you know, watching Rachel Maddow for a year hyperventilating about whatever dumb new news development there was. And there's, you realize, you know, people realize slowly that there's nothing there and that this is a waste of their time. And they start actually, you know, people, I, I saw people starting to get frustrated and angry at the Russia Gators for wasting their time and, and bringing their hopes up. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, uh, that was easy. Cause it was such a, so stupid. It was like, it was like if QAnon went mainstream for liberals, that's why I call it blue and on. But, um, right. With things like Ukraine, it's harder because the problem with like talking about Ukraine 
if say someone who's not on my, who's like has a different point of view than me can say, you know, Russia illegally invaded Ukraine because Putin is an imperialist who wants to conquer Ukraine. And I don't think that's an accurate summation of what is going on here, but it's concise. They can say it in, you know, five seconds and it reflects everything that people are being told in the media. Whereas I need at least like five minutes. I need to talk about the Minsk Accords, NATO expansion, the arms control treaties that were uh, that were disbanded, the the war in the Donbass that's been going on for the last eight years, the different ways in which Biden came in and was trying to ramp up the integration of Ukraine into NATO's military architecture. I need at least five minutes for that, you know. Yeah. So it's it's harder, and people don't have the attention span to the listen attention. to all that or, or the interest, you know, they don't care. They just don't care enough. So it's, yeah. I think, I think people like myself are at a disadvantage there, but you know, um, yeah, I, yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah, of course. I, Cause I've been following your reporting at gray zone and, um, for years. And, um, I just, I've run up against the same issue. It's like, there's too much information to relay to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. But okay, well, yeah. I just thought that maybe there was like at least one success story. <laughs> well, look, because certainly, certainly in, in my personal life, ample success, and certainly I can just tell in my in the in the, in the media audience, I, I I noticed that after a year or two of Russia Gate, a lot of people came over to my side. They realized, that, you know, and I, I heard from people a lot that I helped change their minds. But again, to me, that was an easy one because it was so dumb. A much, a much harder one is something like Ukraine, which is. You know, you could say more complex and certainly more serious. It's a war, but also imagine what people say when I when they ask me like, so what, so what are you working on this week? And I'll be like, oh, I'm working on a story about Syria and chemical weapons, and the and of course the default will be, oh, you mean when Assad gassed his own people because that's all they've heard. Right. And I have to say no. Well, actually, there was this OPCW investigation, and of course I have to explain what the OPCW is, and it, it, it takes forever. So you know that's right. but that's you know that's life. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing all of that work and uh, and even testifying at the UN hearing. Um, and um, um, you know, maybe I'll see you in Brooklyn because I, I live there too. So if I see you on the street, maybe I'll say hi. No, please do, please do. Yeah, okay. I, I always love when people want to say hi to me in a nice way instead of yelling at me. So thank you. <laughs> all, right. all right, have a good day. Thank, thank you for the call. You too. Bye. Okay. Next caller is Ritvik. Hi. And if you're there, there's a microphone button that you press in the bottom right of your screen to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll go on to the next caller in five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Amanda, you're up next. Good morning. Good morning. Um, once again, thank you for the show. Um, I wanted to um, recommend um, I, recently on American Prestige, which is a podcast, um, they were interviewing Danny Bessner, who wrote a book called Empire Burlesque. Have you heard of it? I know Danny. I haven't heard of his book, though. So he, one of the things that he said, among, among other things that I found to be helpful clarifying statements is that foreign policy is intentionally built up to prevent participation by most people. And yes. it was part of the project yes. of 19th century liberalism to separate the elite from the masses and govern in the name of the masses as opposed to with the masses or alongside the masses. And I just thought that was <clears throat> extremely um, insightful. The other thing I wanted to just quickly mention, uh, did you want to say something on that? Well, just that makes, per that makes perfect sense to me. Of course, liberalism hasn't, has become whatever it used to be. It's completely about elitism and separating the public from the elite and, and marginalizing the public from any role in decision making. So that makes perfect, you know, that's, yeah, that's totally in line with what I believe. Yeah, it was just <clears throat> he stated it so clearly, and you just gave another very clear way of saying of saying things that I just haven't haven't heard before. Then the other thing is um, on electoralism. There's 
there's still three states where people, if they live in that state and they are not part of a party, they can still put their name on the ballot. Deadline for Delaware is tomorrow. Rhode Island is Friday, the 15th. And then Vermont is like three weeks from now. So if people wanted to run in one of those states, those are still open. So I just wanted to put that out there because we need to upset somebody. All right, cool. Amanda, thank you. Thanks for that. Okay, Tracy. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Tracy. Hey. Um, I, you know, with all of the things going on in the country, I just wanted to point out uh, not only that there's so much difficulty talking about your one's feelings of, of dissent amongst your peers, but I wanted to point out that there's absolutely no uh, anti-war movement. I mean, there's no, there are no demonstrations or anything. And I think that we as a community need to parse out why that is. Because, uh, I mean, I feel like, you know, there are a lot of distractions. There's a lot of pressures and so on and so forth. But I feel like the normal people who like to protest, who have the wherewithal, who are not necessarily making a living and have a lot of time to be angry... That's not even happening either. And I think we need to take this issue apart because um, as angry as I am about Roe v. Wade and everything else going on, um, I think this is a more important issue. And, of course, nobody protests or says anything about Yemen. No. Um, and I, I mean, there's plenty of people to blame. I blame Barack Obama, who came to office, I think, on the back of anti-war sentiment and then completely dismantled the anti-war movement he um he did it in a really smart way i mean first of all he pretended as if he was anti-war and that he was going to solve all of our problems and people bought into that and so everybody went home but also he changed the way we do warfare where you know he saw how disastrous it was for bush to send troops to iraq so obama really embraced this whole dirty war proxy war thing where you use drones you uh arm death squads like in syria through massive arm and equip programs uh, via the CIA. And that made the war more invisible and made it even more difficult for people to uh, oppose it. And you also engage in a lot of propaganda, really sophisticated propaganda to you know, fool people into not understanding what, what's going on. So I, I personally fault Obama for so many reasons for pretending as if he was the answer. He was going to solve all of our problems. You didn't need to go out and do anything because he was hope and change personified in his, in his uh, unique gifts and, and personality. And that was very effective. And then I blame Russiagate too, because Russiagate normalized in liberal culture, this, the worldview of the, of the national security state, where all of a sudden the CIA and the FBI were our friends and we're on their side. So whatever they want, we want too. And they don't want anti-war protests. They want war, you know? So, we're not going to go against our friends in the CIA. And, uh, and that's why, you know, again, I'm sorry for people who hear me repeat myself. There were bigger liberal protests to save Jeff Sessions' job than there were to save, I don't know, like the Iran nuclear deal or the tax code from Trump's tax cuts because liberal activism became personified in like protecting the national security state, the bureaucracy. And that meant marching to save Jeff Sessions' job because we thought that Jeff Sessions being fired would put Robert Mueller, our hero, our knight in shining armor in danger. I, I also just feel like everybody's, um, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to get angry about cultural issues, right? The cultural war, uh, identity. Yes. There's so much energy. And I feel like something in the culture changed or something moved the culture to, to be more willing to be vocal about that, but not so much about this. It's kind of like, I, I feel like it needs to be dissected. I, I feel like yes, yes, yes. And you saw like, you know, basically we've seen a merger between neocons, like a neocon foreign policy ideology and that kind of cultural, that kind of culture war uh, focus like uh, among liberals. So for example, someone like John Brennan, the former head of the CIA I don't know if you saw this, but like I, I can't remember what he was talking about, but he said you know, something like, I'm ashamed to be a white male right now. And uh, recently Boris Johnson was talking about the war in Ukraine. He said that Putin invading Ukraine was the ultimate example of toxic masculinity. So these guys know 
that they can pretend to be progressive and enlightened by adopting the language of liberal culture warriors, and they can use that to sell their own agenda. It, it, it works brilliantly for them. And the focus on stuff like that has meant people are less invested in what they used to be, which is you know foreign policy and stopping wars and making the connections between wars at home and deprivation abroad. Sorry, wars abroad and deprivation at home. I mean, I, I see, um, you know, my relatives, you know, very upset about what's going on with, um, you know, Roe v. Wade. But it's almost as if they're not aware of the war at all. It's it, as if it's never going to impact them. Anyway, you already made those statements. I just wanted to raise this issue because uh, it's astounding to me that there's not even a peep from anyone out there. And uh, so we're, we're, you know, you know, obviously we're facing nuclear devastation. Yes. So anyway, that's a yeah. It's already well known idea. Thank you so much. Yeah, but look, it it can't be stressed enough that zero Democrats stood up to Biden on Ukraine, and every single Democrat, including the squad, voted for that forty billion dollar proxy war bill, and others as well. Also, the Lend Lease Act, and other measures that fund this war. And the fact that there's not even one Democratic member of Congress to stand up to it speaks to where we're at. It's um. It's, I've never seen anything like it. Well, that's, a, that's the thing. Is like, what what can someone like myself or can we do? I don't want to vote for the Democrats. I'm not going to vote for the Republicans. The progressives aren't doing anything. Where are we going to go? You know. It's a great question. It's a great question. You know, um, for example, in Kentucky, Rand Paul, right? Who I don't agree with at all on, on any kind of domestic issue. He's a He's a libertarian, and I, 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 you know, I have so many disagreements with him. But he's completely opposed to, or he's, he's vocally opposed to the Ukraine proxy war. He even held up that forty billion dollar bill. He's running against Charles Booker, who's totally openly pro proxy war. So, if I were in Kentucky, like, what would I do? You know, um, and that's the choice people are being faced now. Is like, if you care about foreign policy and you care about the future of our planet, Democrats are making it very, very difficult to support them. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty fascinating. Thank you very much. Let me get off the phone so other people can talk. Take care. Thanks, Chris. You too. Okay. Matthew. Hello? Hi there. Hi there. Uh, I'm just, uh, I've never called before and I've listened for a long time since Colin has been around and I think it's a useful tool and everything. But as, as you probably are aware, as someone from Canada, there was an outage, uh, on Friday involving one of the major telecommunication companies, Rogers, and it had an impact on everything from the debit machines to your cell phone, trying to get a hold of loved ones and such. Right. And, uh, I've read the book uh, by Naomi Klein about her uh, that she published called The Shock Doctrine, and there's just a lot of stuff going on right now that I'm kind of kind of connecting the dots to, and I'm trying to make sense of. I don't know what to say, uh, except uh, thank you very much for um, putting in time every morning, you and Katie and uh, Matt and Taibi in the past, of course. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Olu. Hello? Hi there. Yeah. Just want to know about Mark, Mark uh, Mike Pompeo. Do you think yeah, he's going to run for presidency? Great question. Um, a great question. I don't know. You know, I can't make a prediction, but certainly if you – Look at what he's doing. He gave that speech last week that I thought was insane, his speech about the Ukraine war. And it certainly looks like he's running for president, but I have no idea. And if he does, I find him to be a really scary individual. He's probably going to be the worst. He's, going to be, he's probably going to be the most dangerous president uh, leader since like Mussolini and Hitler because he's probably, he's probably going to invade countries and just, you know, take everything and he wouldn't care about international black, black, black cash. So, you know. Yeah. You know. I, he would be even worse than Biden, uh, which is, again, that's a hard thing to say because Biden's pretty bad. And, he, and he'd be even worse than Trump. I, so I think his future plans are really interesting to watch. 
because he's definitely he looks like he's trying to keep himself at least in the ring and uh you know he's got that the thing is he stayed loyal to Trump so it's possible even though he actually completely sabotaged Trump's foreign policy message from 2016 and again I don't know if Trump was sincere when he said that he wanted to focus on domestic issues and not be engaged in destroying other countries. I mean, he had some anti-intervention rhetoric in 2016. I think that helped him win. And Mike Pompeo came in and completely sabotaged all that. But he still, though, has the, uh, the, the advantage of being loyal to Trump so that he could use – he could parlay that into support from Trump's movement, especially if Trump were to endorse him if Trump doesn't run. And that could be very, very dangerous because – that would mean that you know Trump, who I think partly won because people wanted to change in our priorities and spending so much money on regime change abroad and instead focusing on you know issues at home, Pompeo could capitalize on that while still pursuing the exact opposite of what Trump was talking about in 2016. So he's dangerous. He's spooky. I mean, he, 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 he you know he doesn't pretend to be who he's not. Like he is who he is, isn't it? Like. You know, he's an imperialist. Like, you know, he cares about American exceptionalism and stuff like that. Yes, um, he is a uh, he is just an outright hegemon. And it's uh, it's scary. It's scary. And, um, you know, we got Pompeo on on the Republican side. And then we have our current secretary of state, who I call the Pompeo from Paris, because Blinken has the exact same foreign policy. He just is more, he's better educated. He grew up in Paris. He wears nicer suits. And uh, it's scary that these are the choices we have between Mike Pompeo and then the Pompeo from Paris. That's our foreign policy establishment. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Jeff. Aaron, hey, can you hear me? Uh, you're a little quiet. If you could speak louder. That's a bit better. If you're on Bluetooth, I recommend uh, take. Yeah. How about now? Yeah, that's better. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Hey, um, I've been listening for a little while. Uh, finally decided to call in. Just wanted to thank you, Max, all the guys for everything you've been doing over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm a retired Marine Corps infantry officer, fought in Iraq, fought in Ramadi. Uh, I was attached to uh, basically a Shia battalion. Uh, I grew up in L.A., Jewish, so that was an interesting experience, but I, I learned a ton uh, mm. living with those guys. They, they were all part of uh, Maqadar al-Sadr's militia. In Saudi yeah, Saudi. yeah. Um, and, you know, what, what I learned was we're all sort of human beings, and most of those kids, you know, enjoyed Pepsi and looking at Maxim magazines. <laughs> so one of the main questions – actually, one other quick comment before I – my main question is about Israel. Um just because the, the stuff that you guys do, you, Max, Matt, Gwen, all those guys, really opened my eyes. Uh, so I'll just get to the question. I just, what, what should I read? I, I, I grew up pro-Israel, staunchly pro-Israel. You know, grew up in L.A., Jewish kid who ended up in the Marine Corps. I just wanted to ask you, what, what should I read? I want to learn more about your points of view and Max's points of view. And just wanted to get a sense from you, what, you know, where, where should I start digging? I'm pretty well read in all, you know, what going, what's going on in the world. But, you know, I'm a pro-Israel guy, but... I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Well, look, so I really recommend, if you like Max, then I really recommend his book, Goliath, which is all about Israel. And I think it's uh, the best book on contemporary Israel out there. It's, um, it's so good. I mean, Max, Max's career is really interesting. He started out, his first book is called Republican Gomorrah, and it's about how re- Republicans went to the far right. And because of Matt, that book, it was a bestseller. Max was published in The Times. He was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I mean, he was a liberal media darling. And he could have stayed on that course and just, you know, just rode that wave till the end and just, like, kept going after the Republicans and and doing, you know, and would have had a a lot of success in media claim. But instead, for his next book, he decided to go to turn on Israel and actually indict both parties, Democrats and Republicans, for their – staunch support for Israel and document how Israel has gone even way more to the right um, in, in recent years. And so I think that's a great book that really, um, that really opens up the, uh, the underbelly of Israel 
and what it stands for now. And then there are other books historically. If you ha- you know, Israel's history, I think, has been really distorted. There's a lot of propaganda out there that's, I think, falsely portrayed the origins of Israel, 1948, 1967, 1973, all those important events to, I think, falsely give this narrative that Israel has just always been defending itself against these aggressive Arab neighbors. When really, to me, it's a, the history is it's, it's a settler colonial project that displaced Palestinians. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forced to flee from their homes in 1948. And that's because of include you know events including massacres when Palestinian villages were massacred and forced to flee and there's a whole hidden history of that that comes actually from the Israeli archives and there's a bunch of Israeli historians like who have done great work on that such as uh, Elon Pape or Shlomo Ben or, or uh, Benny Morris people like that but I would start with Max's book Goliath. I'll start there. And yeah. Really yeah. Yeah. I'm speaking of myself and my close buddies who, who all were there. Um, and I just, you know, thank, thank you for what you do. Um, and just one other quick question. Do you, do you know about a book called War is a Racket by Smedley Butler? Of course, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, I just, you know, I just wanted to call to thank you. It's just, it's really sad to see everything that's going on. A lot of friends hurt by what's been going on in the last 20 years. And to end Afghanistan, the way it ended, I had some disagreements with. I was glad it, it, it was over. It was just a complete waste, you know, the last... Mm. Uh, but to see what's going on in Ukraine right now and to, and to watch the profiteers go over there, and there's, there's some Marines doing it. It's just really frustrating. But anyway, I just wanted to thank you guys and, and ask about Israel because above all else, you, you've opened my eyes. And I just appreciate your honesty and your reporting and everything you do. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that. I, you know, I, and, thank, and thank you for your service and for, and for speaking out now. It's really powerful when veterans speak out. And it makes it so much more – it's really easy for – you know, powerful forces to ignore voices like mine. Because whatever, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm just a guy in front of my laptop. Like, who cares? But you've actually gone and you've sacrificed for your country. Some great stories. We call them Zundi. You know, Iraqi Arabic soldier. There's some funny great stories. You know, we had pictures of... Oh, my God. I'm drawing a blank on who was in charge in Iran. But, you know, they were all Shia militia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, I, you know, by the end of it, I, I spoke enough, barely enough Arabic to get by, and I trusted those guys with my life. And you know, I broke bread with them during Ramadan and just started to learn more about the culture out there than I ever would have learned, obviously, out of the or, or reading the book. But uh, gave me hope, to be honest. Well, that's a, that's. Listen, thanks so much for sharing all that. And listen, uh, there's a way to message on this app. So send me a message and um, okay. you know, be in touch. Okay. Thanks, all right. Thanks, Jeff. Sure. Take care. All right, Derek. And Derek, if you're there, there's a microphone. There you go. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Um, just some guy in front of his laptop? No, oh, man, I don't think so. I think you're kind of a badass. Um, <laughs> well, I'm thanks. Not- I, I'm, I'm in comparison to someone who is actually... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Risk their yeah. life to go fight in the front lines of, you know. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. Yeah. Humble guy. That's why everybody likes you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know whether uh, Buzzsaw or The Hammer is more appropriate. I don't know. But I think we'll settle that eventually. I like them both. That's nickname for you. Um, so yeah, anyway, I appreciate your work. Appreciate your work. Um, can't imagine taking as much shit as you do without flipping out it's uh, something to admire um yeah thinking about uh what you were saying about obama i mean looking back i mean honestly i think that his opposition to war in iraq was just some you know a direct a directive handed down by the party to disguise uh who he really is um so that they could uh you know have this option for progressives to continue thinking that uh, at least somebody gives a shit um, in the Democratic Party. 
the not-so-democratic party. Um, regarding what Tracy was saying about the sort of aimlessness of progressives, I think there's a, a really solid reason for that underneath everything. Um, you know, they don't know their own history. They hear progressives slash leftists slash revolutionaries talk about all kinds of things, very, very informed people oftentimes. Um, but they don't, they're, they're completely unfamiliar with the, the progressive movement of the early 1900s here in the United States, hmm. uh, progressive era, you know, 19, 1900s to like 1930. You know, this is a, an incredibly dynamic period of time that offers all kinds of lessons on what to do and what not to do. A lot of shit got done in a very short period of time. And in knowing that history, I think progressives would also come to understand very fast that they should see themselves as infiltrators of parties and not members of parties. You know, I think this has led, not knowing this has led to a lot of uh, <clears throat> progressive types on the left to kind of retain this closeted loyalty to uh, the Democratic Party. Of course, they don't talk about it when they're in badass leftist circles talking about revolution and shit, but I think it's still there. Um, I also think it prevents them from thinking strategically about what to do next. I think in a lot of ways they're not... I, I think it's clear at this point they're not... Um, they're not looking. They're not. They're not looking at the political climate as it truly exists. Confronting what they need to confront. They're not weighing all the options they need to weigh. And most of all, they're not thinking of themselves as infiltrators. Like I said. I got gotcha. you. Well, Derek, thanks for the call. I I um I appreciate your words. I'm going to move on because your sound thanks. is a little is a little buggy. So. Uh, okay. All so right. Thanks, thanks for the call. Okay. And the next caller is David. Okay. Hey, man. Hi there. Yeah. Hey, man. How's it going? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, just a question about um, about your upcoming book. When do you think that thing is going to be out there? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Great question. Uh, I I'm trying to finish it as fast as I can. It's about how it's about RussiaGate and how that led to the Ukraine uh, conflict, the the Russian invasion, and I'm trying to finish as fast as I can. But I I have a lot going on. And writing a book is you know it's not easy. It's my first time doing it. It's, uh, I don't recommend it. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'm doing my best. I don't know. I don't have a release date yet. It was if it was supposed to be this November, but I don't think I'm going to make that. To be uh, to, I'm sorry to say, but we'll see. You know, I'm doing as fast as not, I can. Not to add any more chapters to it, but do you delve into uh, like Syria Gate and stuff like that as well? Not know? really. No, I'm saving that for the book after that. Um, <laughs> That's the next book. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on right Syria, on. on Syria, there's a lot to say, and uh, the OPCW scandal is still unfolding, and uh, it's not over. There's a there's a lot more to come on that. So, there'll but there'll be a book on that one day. Cool, cool. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, uh, if you'd allow me to take this opportunity to say, uh, as a lifelong resident of Grand Forks, North Dakota, there is a bridge proposal off of 32nd Avenue into Minnesota, which doesn't make any sense, and it's been pushed for many years, and there's a meeting tonight at 7, and everybody should show up and uh, speak their mind about it, whether they're for it or against it. But I think everybody should be against it. All right. All right. David, thanks for the call. Thanks for your work. Okay. Alex. And Alex, if you're there, there is a microphone button in the bottom right that you press to unmute yourself. Okay, and if not, we'll go on to the next caller, which is... Oh, there you go, Alex. Okay, hi there. Hi. Oh, sorry. I, I wasn't even trying to call in, but uh, this is kind of cool. I'm um, driving home from 
work, just got off of a night shift. Uh, I'm very thankful for uh, pushback and basically everything due. Your uh, articles on Syria have been incredible. It's um, been very insightful to be able to learn just how far. Uh, really, the whole basically the U.S. Empire is willing to go to have things go their way. So I'm thankful Absol- for you, thankful for Katie, Absol- thank you, uh, thankful for Matt. Just um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. And safe, safe driving home. Safe driving home. Take care. Take care. Okay. Yulu. Okay. And uh, Brianna, which is going to be our last call of the day. So, Brianna, go ahead. Hey, Aaron. Thanks so much for taking my call. I'm a big fan. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, I made the mistake yesterday of opening up Facebook and, um, I saw someone post the latest issue, uh, the latest edition of the media bias chart Okay, that, you know, kind of makes the rounds every now and then. And, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, every time I look at one of these charts, every time they put out a new edition of it, I'm just kind of amazed at where they, where they position everyone. And I (laughs) I see the gray zone is over there in the hyper-partisan left, which is hilarious because you guys are currently being accused of being far right, you know, (laughs) (laughs) wretched operatives. (laughs) And I think this kind of speaks, I think you touched on it a little bit earlier, just kind of, um, I think there's a lot of us that feel like we don't really have a political home right now because the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have basically merged into the Uniparty. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. Like, I feel like yeah, like there's a lot of us out there that don't have a political home right now. And it's really hard to organize and actually put pressure on our government and our elected officials when, uh, you know, when we're just so profoundly divided. And you talked a little bit with another caller about like family members that have opposing views and things like that. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about what happened or what's been happening with the People's Party, where yeah. Nick Brana, who was a former staffer with Bernie, he tried to form a, a new party, uh, People's Party, and he had Cornell West involved and Nina Turner a little bit. And, yeah. But since then, they've been totally um, consumed with infighting, and it's yeah. difficult. And you know, allegations being made, and I've no, I haven't looked into them, and I, you know, I, I know Nick personally, and I like him. Uh, he's, I think he's a really um, nice guy and I think his heart's in the right place I don't know what happened internally because I I haven't paid attention but it just it speaks to how difficult it is to organize an alternative yep it's just when you try it there's things collapse so easily and there's especially on the left like I've been to meetings of leftist groups where it's like we spend two hours just trying to think about like trying to figure out what the order of the meeting will be and what the agenda (laughs) will be you know and so it's it's difficult and um, the Democratic Party is so established and they have their base of support. They're able to scare people constantly into, you know, based on legit grounds because Republicans have a scary agenda. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it works really well for everybody. It works for both parties. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, and it's really hard to break out of it. And um, I it's mean, it's really pe- hard. I think like when we have like really high quality independent media and independent journalists like yourself or Glenn or Katie. I mean, um, I mean, there's so many Chris Hedges. I mean, we have these like brilliant independent media voices out there that are giving us really what I consider nonpartisan fact-based reporting about what's going on in the world and then the mainstream media smears you guys constantly as either being far left or far right depending on what day it is 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the funny thing there is it's not even just the mainstream media. It's also even progressive media too. So, oh, yeah, totally. You know, like some of the biggest you know critics that I've had to face or people attacking me are come from yeah. spaces that identify as progressive. And it's exactly so, and that speaks to you know what the dynamic that happened after Bernie, where so Bernie was a you know ever, for a second everybody was united around Bernie, but then Bernie collapsed and. Then it became sort of like a turf war where like yeah. lefty media spaces were trying to like outflank each other. And, and yep. so it's constant like that. And it's just – if you're in power, it works beautifully because your progressive challenges are consumed with dysfunction and infighting. And so there's never any yeah. alternative. And then someone like myself, like it's true. I mean I take – I'm not above it. I take part in it. Like I, I go after other outlets too sometimes on the left. But – Mm-hmm. Usually, I, I like to think that I do it when I'm just trying to defend myself and correct false claims about me. But still, it's consuming and it it diverts people's attentions into these these infights rather than the problems we're all supposed to care about. Yep, yep. Well, I just i I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for all the work that you do, and Katie and all of you guys are just awesome. We need you so much right now. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah. And uh, thanks, everybody who called in. Sorry for those who didn't have time to get to today. We'll be back here next week at the same time, 11 a.m. Eastern time. And I'll be back on call-in later on this week with my show, AM Live. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Usefulidiots.substack.com if you want to subscribe to get bonus content. And that's it. Happy birthday, Katie, and have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.